I've had some conversations recently, um, e even like with Eric this morning, with with some of you. I don't remember who all, but I know I've, I've been having this conversation recently, uh, just talking about how it's kind of difficult for us to know, especially in this day and age, for us to have a clear picture of who is actually a follower of Christ and who is not, uh, or who is a Christian and who is not. Obviously, we can't see people's faith and see under their soul and know just kind of by looking at them for certain, but um, and for a lot of reasons, it's it would be nice to be able to just have a clearer picture of those who um, are truly believing Christ and those who aren't. Um, I think specifically of family, like a lot of maybe we have family members that it's like, claim to be Christians. I think they are, but I just don't really see anything in their life. Um, who are God's people? It'd be nice to be able to know that clearly. 2,500 years ago, God's people, it was super easy to tell. The people of God, or Yahweh, was the people of Israel, right? It was a particular race in a particular land, and that was who the people of God were at the time. It was kind of easy to determine that. Um, almost a couple thousand years ago, as the church is kind of getting started, it's, it was easy to tell. Why? Because you wouldn't uh, say that you were a Christian unless you actually were a Christian. Because there was nothing socially or culturally advantageous to say that you're a Christian if you weren't actually a Christian, right? You'd be persecuted, likely, if you were a Christian. Um, so you wouldn't just toss that term around, but it's like, you've got to be in it to... Uh, you're really in it if you are going to say that of yourself. Um, as you guys know, though, in kind of the post-Christian Western world that we live in, it's a lot harder to tell um, who might actually be a genuine follower of Christ and who's not. Um, and that's partly because in many places, those who, are, who deny God or even say something bad about Jesus, you're kind of, um, that's... In some cases, in the South, for instance, that's like a social no-no or death sentence, right? Like, you wouldn't don't say that you don't believe in God. That's weird. You shouldn't say that you um, think that Jesus was cuckoo or whatever. Like, you wouldn't do that. And um, even, even here, living in, like, a city, um, it's still not all that disadvantageous for me to say I'm a Christian. Like, maybe it's, it means something to people. Maybe it looks, maybe my family's proud of me for living a, for identifying as a Christian or whatever, but um, it's it's just hard to tell. Sometimes it, it would be, there's a, a part of me that just thinks, man, it, in some ways it would be easier if we just lived in a world where it was clear, you're following Christ, because there's no reason, like Paul, there's no reason to believe what we do or have a kind of life that we do if this isn't true. It would just be a little easier in some ways. Um, I think about that when we're talking about how to deal with like sin even, how we're challenging each other and calling each other to righteousness. It's like, well, if somebody's not believing, then I'm not going to really do that with them. They're not subscribing to Christian thought. But if they say they're a Christian, even if they don't seem like a Christian, well, should I try to you know tell them what God's word says? All these questions. Um, so I really would like to know, and uh, even more than I want to know, who is a, a child of God, um, as I was thinking about it this week and studying this passage, like I want to, I want them to know. I want you to know, or other people to know. What, like I, 
I know for myself, the Spirit kind of it, it confirms my relationship with God and myself. I know what I believe, but I want other people to know, am I truly believing this or am I not? And if you've had some conversation with me, you know, that's kind of one of the, I think, uh, goals of our church, kind of a sub-goal, is to say, hey, for, the, for those that say that they're Christians, maybe they'll come here and find out they're not really Christians, and at least they, they can know that because they're not willing to follow Christ. Um, so what Jesus is going to do in this passage, or what I'm going to, what Mark is going to do, what I'm going to draw out, is um, Jesus is going to show who God's people are. And he's going to kind of make a, a separation or a distinction that is uncomfortable, certainly to in, in our society, and maybe even uncomfortable for us as we kind of flip through the relationships that we have. Um, first, so in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, this is kind of a summary statement. Mark likes to do this periodically, kind of summarize Jesus' ministry so far. So he says this in Mark 3, 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples. This is after the Pharisees are starting to want to destroy Jesus, like Austin shared last week. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. That's from the south, from the east, from the north. I can't say from the west because that's the Mediterranean Sea. All over the place, they're coming following Jesus. When the crowd, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he's told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. If you remember last week, um, or, or a couple weeks ago, I kind of described this secret of Jesus. Hey, don't say who I am. Just as a, J Jesus is both revealing who he is, and he's veiling who he is, kind of at the same time. And he doesn't want to prematurely be made king. He doesn't want to prematurely go to the cross, to his death, before he has the opportunity to do what he's going to do in these three years and kind of fully reveal who he is to people. So he keeps some things kind of veiled for now. And that's why he orders the demons to be silent oftentimes. Um, at this point, it seems like people still are coming to Jesus just primarily for healing. Remember, the, even after the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians, these opposite parties, even after they're like, we've got to stop this guy, we've got to destroy this guy, he's speaking things that are crazy and they start plotting how to kill him, Everybody else is like, this dude's doing miracles, and so I'm in, and they're just like, hey, I'll take a miracle, that's good for me. Um, they've heard all that he was doing. They just want to touch him, they want to be healed, and they're crowding in around him. And so Jesus gets in a boat, and we see this at least a couple times where Jesus is in a boat teaching the crowd. He's going to do that in chapter 4, so that he won't be crushed. It's kind of like, if you remember, we've been saying this, like Jesus' primary Jesus made a priority of preaching. And if he's just being crowded around, almost crushed in on, then uh, it, it's like he's escaping to the boat so that he can actually speak. He has something to say. It's like, hey, okay, 
I know that I'm doing these great things for you and all, but I need you to hear me. I have a message that I need to tell you. And so at times he kind of backs up and he makes himself available to speak to the crowd. Um, verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder, Andrew, we've seen all of those guys in Mark's account follow Jesus, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, I'll ask you guys this. Why is 12 significant? Why does 12 stand out? The 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel, yeah. God's people that came from the 12 sons of Jacob, or also named Israel, the family of Abraham. In the Old Testament, this is God's particular people. He... He has made them his people, those people that come from the 12 tribes of Israel. Usually when 12 is mentioned in the Old Testament, it has to do with those 12 tribes of which God makes a people out of. The, the uh, garment that's over the high priest in his, in his breast piece, he has like 12 stones, I think, that on them are written the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. All 12, 12, 12 always has to do with the beginnings of this nation. And now Jesus picks 12 men who are kind of the beginning of, of a new nation again, a new family, God's new covenant people, God's kingdom. He starts again with 12. So the, the kingdom of God, which is kind of hinted at in the 12 tribes of Israel, it now begins to take shape in 12 men, 12 people. And um, I, like in my mind, this scene is like Jesus, when, he's, when you're like team captains and you're choosing your team, and you like pick the best players and whatever, but that's not the case with Jesus. Um, he's, he's like, he, there's a bunch of people, and he's calling to himself those whom he desired. And he's saying, these are my people. This is how we're going to start um, in this spreading of the kingdom of God. So think back to, the, to Israel, these 12 tribes. What are some of those things maybe... What was God's purpose for Israel? Why did he set them apart? What would you say? Some of the purposes. Maybe there were multiple. What was his purpose for those 12 tribes? To have a people for himself. Okay, to have a people for himself. Um, yeah, um, there's a number of times he said, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. Yeah. And at one time, they weren't his people, and he wasn't their God, and kind of, um, that seems to be his desire. What holiness. What's that? Holiness. Holiness, okay, yeah. They, he, and in comparison to all the other nations. Yeah, right. So you could say they're, they're supposed to stand out and, and even speak something by who they are among the nations. They worship a holy God. They are called to be holy people. Somewhere in the New Testament, I remember saying something that Israel was entrusted to, like, with the scriptures or something to, to reveal God. Yeah, yeah, they were given the oracles of God, and 
yeah, and that was they were they were entrusted with that, and 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 through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Yeah, what what did God have? Um, what was His desire for His people? Like, why would He make a people His people? What's what's good about that, or what's why would He want that? Anything connected with that? You think of? Maybe it's not apparent, but I would say he, he wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his people or his people with him. I think is a theme you could draw out probably through all scripture. That's how it was in the perfection of Garden of Eden. That's how it will be in new creation. But with sin separating, then you get the, the whole purpose of the tabernacle and the temple and all the cleansing and sacrifices in the Old Testament is so that God could be with his people. They could be with him. And so I'd say that's a big, a big theme. Same thing kind of continues on in the redemption, redemption story. Um, I think that's a big thing, and I do think God, God has had called Israel to be a blessing to the nations. In Abraham, in in this people, in the Hebrews, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God had something to proclaim to other people through this people of Israel. Himself, He was proclaimed through them. So check this out in verse 14. So, so that this is why Jesus, or this is why God sets apart the 12 tribes, to be with him, or these are two of the reasons, to be with him and to proclaim him. Verse 14, Jesus appointed, set apart 12, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So I see, just like God had a plan for his old covenant people, starting with the 12 sons of Israel, he has a plan for his new covenant people, starting with the 12 apostles. And honestly, his plan isn't all that different, right? He wants, uh, he wants his people to be with him, and he wants them to be proclaimers of him. Another thing I just want you to see here is, um, this is the second time that we've seen Mark make kind of a summary statement. Um, the first one was in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where it says, Jesus came uh, into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's how Mark starts, or he, he gives a summary of what Jesus is doing and about to do. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. That's a summary of Jesus' personal ministry. Right after that in chapter 1, he calls his, these disciples to follow him, Simon, Andrew, James, John. He says, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. So what, what Jesus does he, that's followed by he, he calls his disciples to do what he was doing. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, repent, and he tells the disciples, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men as well. And then you see here, again, this is kind of, I think, a literary tool that Mark is using. We see a summary of, of Jesus' work here in chapter 3. He's preaching from the boat. He has authority over demons. And what follows, he calls to himself the twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So what the, the summary of what Jesus, the types of things that Jesus was doing, is what he calls his disciples to do. And later he is actually going to send them out, we'll see in chapter 6. Um, so in Mark's just kind of arrangement of the stories, how he's telling things, I think he's pointing out, what Jesus does, he calls his disciples to do. 
That's just basic kind of discipleship, right? It's the pattern of discipleship. Jesus calls, we follow him and, and, and are with him, and then he, he sends us out to, to do the same types of things that he has done and to live the same type of life that he has lived. So already, maybe you can see, if you, if you uh, remember what I was kind of asking at the beginning, we can see how you might identify the people whom Jesus has called. They will, they will be a people who are with him, and they will be doing what Jesus does. Verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, just kind of another name for Satan. It's kind of, I think, derived from some ancient false god, but they kind of associate it with Satan. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. All right, that was a long chunk, but let me just work through it. There's two groups coming in opposition to Jesus' work. Two groups, in fact, you might say, that should be on Jesus' team, his family um, and, and the Jews and, and the religious Jews. They should be Jesus' partners. His family's saying what in verse 21? He's out of his mind. Now, why are they saying that? And why are they trying to seize him? Just, if we had to guess. They're embarrassed. Yeah, maybe they're embarrassed. Dude has is, is gone crazy, and he's, maybe that's, that's shameful to our family, the way he's acting. He's not even, he can't even eat, you know. Anything else? He's just opposing them, the religious leaders. Yeah, yeah he's, he's making enemies, and... Um, he's called a bunch of sinners. Yeah. His disciples. yeah, yeah, he's hanging out with the wrong people. All these things certainly would be disgraceful to, to a Jewish family like his. Maybe they thought, dude, Jesus, you're going to get us killed. Like, you keep doing these crazy things. They're going to think, dude, we've got to take this guy out and his family. I don't know what all they're thinking, but at least they're thinking, they're, that 
I imagine they're like, hey, it's, it's okay, Jesus, for you to do these good things, like you're healing people, this is all great, but just like tone it down. Like if you could just be normal and not so extreme, like just kind of do a little thing here and there, but don't make such a scene. Your People are going to think you're crazy. We are starting to believe that you're crazy. That's the first group. The second group is the scribes that say, what are they saying in verse 22? He's possessed. He's possessed. He's got a demon. He's, got, he's possessed by the prince of demons, and that's how he's doing all these things. Why would the, the Pharisees, or the, the scribes in this case, why would they say that? Why don't they like what Jesus is doing? It seems like a good thing. It's incredibly inconvenient for them, because they are supposedly the ones with all the answers to big questions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it might belittle their um, their authority. He's speaking as one who has authority and saying some different things than them, and um, and people are coming to his side or seem to be wanting to follow follow him or interested in what he's doing at least. Yeah. I don't know if I just described what you were saying. I, that was yeah. No, that's good. That's, that's exactly. He's saying he has the power to forgive sins, which is a lofty statement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's like a no-no in their books, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you remember, um, too, last week, uh, the Pharisees, what, what Jesus is doing is almost belittling or lowering the authority that the Pharisees have. They have all these extra laws or whatever, and Jesus is saying, you, you have misinterpreted what the law is supposed to mean, and he's placing this authority kind of above what their authority is. So, of course, nobody likes that. Now, I mean, they have to change something, or they have to change their ways. Um, the scribes that are making the accusations, it says in verse 22, they'd come down from Jerusalem, which means that Jesus' ministry had become so noticeable and significant that the Sanhedrin was sending, like, the big dogs in from Jerusalem kind of confront this. This is the leaders of the nations of the nation of Israel, the scribes. Um, I believe the Pharisees were there too, Matthew speaks of. So there's these, these two groups in opposition to Jesus, his family and his people, you could say, or his nation, his religion, that's all mixed up in, in Jews. Two groups who should be on his team, you would think, are rising up against him saying these things. Now, I just want to uh, share like what's happening here with what the what Jesus tells the scribes because it's maybe a little bit confusing. Um, what the scribes are accusing Jesus of of being possessed by a demon and using that to cast out demons is ridiculous. It, he's possessed by a demon. If you think about it, and that demon then is working against other demons by casting them out of people. Um, but, Jesus is pointing out, I think, that their accusations, they don't, they don't even make sense. If Jesus said, if I'm working for Satan, why would I be working against Satan by casting out demons? It's just ridiculous. Like, Satan wants to get demons into people, and I'm casting demons out of people. So, it's like if somebody is on your team, and they're taking a shot at the goal, it's like, you don't reach out and block your teammate's shot, right? That doesn't make any sense. Unless you're two years old, right? And then you play for the wrong team for a minute or four or whatever. And you're, you know, running the opposite way on the field. I love this video. No, 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 turn around. Um, so, and he goes on to say, if a kingdom works against itself, you have one party trying to bring down another party of the same kingdom, 
That kingdom cannot stand. Warning, America. Um, I don't think that's what he's talking about. But. And if a, house, if a house or family is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He goes on, so if Satan has risen up against himself, what you're accusing me of, and is divided, like I'm possessed by a demon, and I'm casting out demons on my same team, then either one, you should rejoice because Satan cannot, cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. If, if there's a civil war going on within Satan's kingdom, well, great, he's going to come to an end, and we should rejoice at that. Or, more likely, you're making up crap because you actually know who's, by whose power I am doing these things. If Jesus isn't casting out demons by the spirit, a spirit of Satan, then who is he casting them out by? The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? If either the scribes are right, Jesus is possessed, let's just say he's possessed by Satan and he's casting out demons by Satan. Well, that means Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. It's like internally combusting. Great. But that can't be what they're suggesting. That doesn't make any sense. Satan's not going to do that. He's too smart. So the other option is the scribes are, are wrong. Jesus casts out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, which still means Satan's kingdom is coming to an end because Jesus is binding the strong man and he's eventually going to plunder his goods. So Jesus is, is saying... Like, you must be able to see that I'm acting in the power of the Spirit of God. That's the only thing that makes sense. And now you have a choice. Whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on God's side? Are you going to be on Satan's side? And then he talks, starts talking about blasphemy. Blasphemy, I mean, there's different ways to define it, but let's just say it's, it's to speak abusively against someone. To slander, to insult, to mock, to profane somebody's good name. And oftentimes in scripture it's talking about doing that with God. Jesus is telling the scribes, so you can see that I'm working for God, the, the same person that by whom your your people are casting out demons. But you're calling the work of God that I'm doing the work of Satan. You're calling God's spirit a satanic spirit. You're calling God Satan. Now, that's like, that's blasphemy at its most blatant. Like, you really want to say the wrong thing, then call God Satan. That's the, the worst, right? So, what the scribes, are, the direction that they're heading, what they would be doing here, they're not just rejecting Jesus. Jesus isn't even fully revealed yet. Like, he's kind of veiling himself. They're, they're kind of unsure who this dude Jesus is. But they're outright rejecting God. They're calling the obvious work of God, a dude that's casting out demons, a work of Satan. So they're choosing, in that, they're choosing the wrong team, if you will. And if they, if they continue on that path, they're siding with the wrong person. So it's like, I, I think Jesus is wanting to point out, do you, do you guys even know what you're saying? Like, this is, seems like a nice attack or whatever, and it seems like it might get you somewhere with the crowds, but do you know what you're saying? Do you know who you're choosing if you're trying to equate the work of God with the work of Satan? Now, there's very few people who will admit, um, who will freely admit, oh, I'm on Satan's team. Yeah, that's the team that I work for. Um, everybody, I'd say, or most people, like to think that they're on God's team. 
they don't believe in God, at least they want to, you want to be on the good team, right? Not the wrong team, the bad team, the evil team. But if you are on the wrong team, what, what do people on the wrong side do to feel okay about themselves? But they make the other side seem bad or evil, right? And that, isn't that what the like, scribes and Pharisees, they've been doing that thus far in the gospel. They're trying to make Jesus look wrong. They're trying to trap Jesus in saying something so that he looks wrong. Um, you won't hear in a two-sided argument, hey, you know what? You're exactly right, and I'm wrong, and so I'm going to do it my wrong way. I'll take the evil route. That doesn't happen. Rarely do we hear, unfortunately, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm going to change and actually join your side, right? That doesn't happen. has never happened on Facebook. Um, <laughs> so the only way that I can win if I'm on the wrong team and get what I want is to make the other person wrong or to seem wrong. We say... Here's why you're actually wrong, so that I can do it my way. So I, I do this, for example, when I fight with Mary Beth. Do you know that happens? <gasps> it's happened twice. Just kidding. Um, it does happen. Now, most of the time, if Mary Beth are in, there's just two sides to the argument. If we're arguing back and forth, Mary Beth and I, who's right? Mary Beth. Mary Beth. Good. That's right. Mary Beth <laughs> certainly most of the time is right. But the problem with that is if she's right, then I know, well, that means that I'm wrong. And the only way that I can win then, and the only way that I can get what I want, is if I make her wrong somehow in the situation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, I'm pretty good at that. Like, I'm, I can make some like logical argument um, to, to where all of a sudden she, she started to think, well, oh, maybe maybe I am wrong. Maybe you are right, just because I twisted things enough to. Does any you guys do that sometimes? Or you know? That's okay, yeah. Right. So sometimes it's the. <laughs> we make it like we do this if I don't want to come to your side and admit that you're right then I have to somehow make you wrong yep. we do that in gossip like oh, we, we tell somebody he said this she said this and I said this and then we try to paint the most ridiculous picture of the other person so obviously they're wrong in what they said um, in politics right that happens all the time I'm, I'm either jealous of the other candidate or the other candidate has actually done something right, maybe, but I can't admit it, so I have to paint that somehow in a bad light. And they did it, maybe it was the right thing, but they did it for the wrong motivation or whatever it is to make them look wrong so that I can be right or I can do what I want to do. So it's just our natural kind of uh, unspirit or uh, a fleshly <laughs> unspirit, um, tendency. If somebody says you're wrong, then our tendency is to say, no, you're wrong. I don't even know what you're talking about, but I know that you're wrong because I can't be wrong. Um, and that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing. They don't want to come to Jesus' side uh, because maybe he's saying that he has authority or maybe he's kind of stealing the spotlight from them. 
So they somehow has to have to claim that, well, he's on the wrong side. He's actually on Satan's side. But Jesus is saying, your argument, it doesn't even make sense. Like, I must be doing these miracles by God's power, and so my side is actually God's side, and it's, it's apparent. Therefore, if you're rejecting God, you can't be forgiven. So in verses 28 and 29, difficult kind of verse, I won't spend a long time on it, but it, it's saying if you can't admit that Jesus might be saying, if you can't admit that what I'm doing is right and good, and what you're doing is wrong, then you're against God. And when you're working against God, there is no forgiveness. There's, there's no neutral ground in this situation. We see Satan and God, and there's nothing in between those two. For the, most of the scribes and Pharisees, it was most important for them to be right instead of following the way of God as it was being revealed through Jesus. And you can only make yourself good, scribes and Pharisees, by making God evil. And in that, he offers no forgiveness. God puts it this way in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to them who put darkness for light and light for darkness. If your heart is so hardened that you can't even admit the truth, if you want evil so much that you'll distort who our good God is, if you listen to the deceiver and believe that God isn't good and you must be right instead, then you will find that that deceiver is your father, Satan, and you will perish in your rejection of God. And it sounds kind of extreme, like what Jesus is saying, this unpardonable sin or whatever, but he has the choice between God and the evil one is extreme. Like, maybe the scribes coming to Jesus thought it was just kind of a, a, a light thing. Like, maybe they were just kind of tossing out this idea as, well, maybe this will shut Jesus down. And, and maybe Jesus is like, hey, I'm not even, you're not even sure who I am. That's okay. I'm not even fully out there yet. But can I really expose what's going on? You're saying that I'm on Satan's side. That doesn't make any sense. And it means that you're actually on the wrong side. And that is an infinitely grave mistake. Okay? Um, people get kind of scared with uh, the unpardonable sin. Um, and they think, well, if you commit this, then you can never be forgiven. What if I've done this? What if I actually have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I doomed? Can I recover from that? And I think that what Jesus is saying here, it's consistent with the whole of the Bible. If you reject God's side by calling your side right and his wrong, you're not forgiven of that. That's what Satan suggests in the Garden of Eden. He says, God wasn't right or good, or he plants these ideas in what he said, Adam and Eve. He wants to restrict you. He wants to keep you down. What he's doing is mean or it's evil. And if you believe that kind of a lie to the grave, and if the pattern of your life is, nope, I'm right, my rules are right, I'm good, my authority is right, what God actually says then in these certain situations can't be right, that person is not forgiven. You've placed yourself above God. You've blasphemed God's spirit, and the consequences of that are eternal. But, on the other hand, if we confess our sins, 
if we confess our own wrongness and God's rightness, and we, if the pattern of our life is repentance, God, you're right, you're right, I was wrong, you're right, but then though we sin, it says all sin will be forgiven. So, I like what uh, a famous J.C. Rao quote says. Um, it says, there is such a thing as a sin which will never be forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. So if you're worried about it and feel convicted, like, what, what have I said? What have I done? I'm not sure if I... Then this is not, not talking to you. The, the one who has committed this eternal sin or in their heart they're rejecting God and they're not to return, they're not asking the question, have I done this? Oh, no, I don't know if I've done this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. There's probably a lot, a lot of different kind of opinions on exactly what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, but that's kind of a quick, hopefully somewhat satisfying answer. Um, and I hope I spoke truth in that. I, that's something like that. Um, Jesus is starting to divide the people. A lot of his ministry so far has been kind of, I mean, you're seeing people come against him, but he's kind of making some statements now that is showing there's there's two sides. Spiritually, there's two sides. And there's no neutral ground. His family says he's out of his mind. Does he give them a break? Well, at least they're his family. No, he doesn't. Jesus says, in essence, you're not my family. If you're trying to stop God's work, you aren't neutral. Okay? If a house, he says, is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand to that family. So Jesus is is dividing things. He's saying, my family, this family of God, are those who do the will of the Father. Talk about that in just a minute. The scribes, they say he casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. In saying that, you're demonstrating you're not my people. If you're trying to stop God's work, you aren't neutral. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So God, again, he's or Jesus is, he's kind of, he's, he's making a line in the sand. He said, you see, the one side or it's the other side. My people, the people of God, are those who confess that God is right above all, not just who want to get their own way. And so I was thinking about it, like, we don't like to talk about uh, eternal things or think about things um, this strictly as if there are only two sides. There are only two ways. Um, Mark doesn't say it, but Matthew Luke's account of this very thing, um, Jesus says clearly, whoever is not with me, nation, family, people, whatever, whoever's not with me is against me. Okay, there's one of the other. Another time Jesus says, whoever is not against me is for me. So either way, there's, there's two options, right, that Jesus is presenting. There's team God, you could say, or team Jesus, and team Satan. Those are the two options. I don't have to look at any of us and ask the question, well, which team do you want to play for? Which team are you on? I assume that all of us would say, um, well, I'm on Team God, of course. But what I want to point out, uh, just to kind of come to an end, is to point out that um, I want to point out that there's clarity in, in those sides, what those sides look like. And no one is in between. Sometimes we think there are in-betweens. Let me tell you uh, what, how we think that there are in-betweens. One I mentioned a few weeks ago. One of the in-betweens, like I'm not sure about this person, 
Well, I know that they believe in God. Right? We've talked about that. I believe in God. To which James says, good for you, even the demons believe. Like, that, that wasn't enough. That's not a good enough um, understanding of who God is. Um, I... Believing that, that there is a God is not enough. That's, you don't find forgiveness of sins in that. The, the scribes, in fact, in this story, Team Satan, in this case, they would never say that God doesn't exist, right? They're, they're very much pro-God. Um, another in-between line, though, and this one's a little more confusing, maybe, is I believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God. And I'm going to stop with that kind of knowledge. Now, you remember... Um, I said in week one that this, the gospel is good news about a specific person that's about the person of Jesus. It's not just vague God, but it's about Jesus. And that's true, but do we only acknowledge the truth about Jesus to be saved? Yep, that's right. Again, the demons believe that. In verse 11, what we looked at today, whenever an unclean spirit saw him, the demons... They fell down before him and cried out, exactly, you are the son of God. Jesus, you're the son of God. Was that enough? Obviously, that's not, and that's a truthful statement. We're not denying that. But acknowledging Jesus obviously doesn't put you on Jesus' side. Acknowledging who he is, even as the son of God. Another kind of in-between is, um, is the person who says, well, I've had an experience with Jesus at some point. I saw him, or he healed me. I, I don't usually question people's experience that maybe God had healed them, or maybe they, they did see Jesus in some way, or experiencing or experience him. But um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are his people. A lot of people kind of grab onto that. None of the 12 disciples that I know of that, that are just mentioned here, the 12 apostles, had some, like, Jesus healed them of something or cast a demon out of them. They're just dudes that it wasn't about the experience that they had that was what uh, granted them forgiveness or what made them true, truly the people of God. So, so what's the difference? Like, how can we actually know and see who's truly on Jesus' side? How can we identify God's people? Well, it's those, as we said here at the beginning, those who are with Jesus. Notice who's with Jesus in, in all of these stories that we read. Once these guys are called, it's like they're with Jesus everywhere he goes. Who's not with Jesus? His family, they kind of show up every once in a while. The scribes and Pharisees, they kind of pop in and out of the picture, but they're not with Jesus. The apostles, the disciples, many of them are with Jesus. You guys, maybe you guys know people who are kind of just pop in and out of their relationship with God for their whole life. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm with them and I'm not. I'm with them and I'm not. It's like, oh, are you with Jesus? And then, those who are doing what Jesus did. Those who are with him, and those who are doing what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Well, we've seen so far, his priority in ministry is preaching. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. What's he set apart the twelve for, it says? Well, he sets them apart for preaching, for proclaiming the kingdom of God. And Jesus was doing miracles, uh, casting out demons specifically. He's calling his disciples to do miracles and cast out demons, his apostles. What else does Jesus do? Jesus does the will of the Father. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. How do I know who's on Jesus' team? Who is his family? Those who are not doing their own will, but they are doing the will of God. That's what he says about his family. Those, those are the people that are my actual family. Just like 
just like Jesus does. Jesus does the will of God, his people do his will. Those who are with Jesus, those who are doing what Jesus did. We studied the book of 1 John a couple years ago, and John makes really clear, do you want to know who is in Christ? Or you could say who's on God's team, on Jesus' team. And he says, uh, there's a couple of different things, but besides confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, yeah, that's an important one. We do have to believe that. But besides that, yes, you need him. Listen how clear John gets. Just read a few verses. I mean, if you want to know who's in Christ, John explains it pretty clearly here. 1 John 3, 6 through 10. No one who abides in Christ, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. They haven't been with him. And he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. Or those who are on Christ's side do what Jesus does. On the other hand, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, the only other team. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's an important word in their practice. It's not a repeated thing in your life that you just continue to sin and sin and sin and sin. The same sins. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And then verse 10, this is pretty blunt. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Here's the dividing line. Like who's, who's your dad? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. It's inferred. Whoever does is of God. Why? Because Jesus was righteous. And his followers do what Jesus did. So how can we identify those people who are truly on God's side? Well, they're with him and they're doing what he did. To be clear, I, I think you all know this, but our, those works of righteousness and the good things that we do, they don't qualify us to be on God's team, but they show us the team on which we already are, on the team in which he's made us. Make sense. Um, so, two sides. It seems uh, like I don't like to think of things that way. Sometimes people don't like to hear these two sides. It seems kind of a little audacious. Well, I'm on God's side. Other people who don't follow them, they're not. You're not on God's side. That doesn't necessarily go over real well. Um, some reasons people might react. Uh, who do you think you are? You arrogant. Bigot. Um, who do you think you are saying that you're on God's side? Um, or that's that's so exclusive. Like what a turnoff that is. You're setting yourself up against everybody else, even your family potentially. How could you do that? That's 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 unheard of. That shouldn't be. Um, so I want to just make two things clear, um, so that we understand what's going on here. Hopefully, we can make this clear to the people that we explain these two sides to. First of all, we who are on God's side are not innately different than those who are on Satan's side. When we pick teams, when we're the team captain, we're like, I'll take you and you and you. How do we pick teams, like in our world? 
He picked the most talented, the most talented, the best player. Yeah, the person with the best kick. Trying to be relevant to you, Austin. <laughs> That's not a soccer. That's exactly term. how I base it. That's yeah. the best <laughs> kick. My kick percentage is. Um, Okay, that's not how God picks teams, right? So when God chose Abraham, in the Old Testament, he chose the 12 tribes to be his people. Why did he pick Israel? Well, he didn't pick them because of who they were, right? They weren't a people. They weren't anything special. They were this humble group of people. They weren't much to speak of. Deuteronomy 7 kind of talks about that. Well, just like the sons of Jacob, of Israel, these 12 apostles, we know they're not real fancy men either, right? They're fishermen and they're tax collectors, kind of a bunch of nobodies. And I think he chooses them specifically because they're not special. And there was nothing different about them than anyone else. They were real everyday people. I love the, the list that Mark goes through. He says, hey, they're just children of these parents that you know. Son or, sons of Zebedee and this other James, he's son of Alphaeus. Like, they're, just, they're just regular people. They're, they have different personalities. He mentions uh, James and John are the sons of thunder. That they're, They have big, maybe kind of explosive or angry kind of personalities, is what we think. Um, they probably have different political persuasions. It's nothing that they had figured out the right way. Simon has mentioned, Simon the Zealot, like this is, you know, eventually becomes some political party that we should probably overthrow Rome. That's his kind of view and things, whatever. So, but it's just, it's, it's everyday people with different views, with different personalities, different parents. They come from different cities. Judas Iscariot, we think that Iscariot, one of the things, like what that means is Judas came from a city called Kirioth, and that's what Iscariot, that's kind of where the word comes from. Anyway, everyday people, there's nothing special about them. And Jesus calls to himself out of the masses these nothing special everyday people, those whom he desired, it says. And he says, I'm going to start with you guys. Um, I'm not sure what whom he desired means, uh, or we won't try to get into that. We'll leave that up to Jesus, his desires. But we know that has nothing to do with those guys, why he desires them. Being on God's team is no thanks to us. So that's the first thing. Like we who are on God's side, we're no different really in, in who we innately different than those who are on the other team, on Satan's side. Secondly, we who are on God's side are not against those people who are on Satan's side. We who are God, on God's side are not against the people who are on Satan's side. We are actually, because we're with God, we're against Satan. We're against the coach, right? We actually love the people and are called to love the people on the other team. And we're to plead with them until our dying breath that they would come to God's side. So this sounds a little bit harsh, what Jesus says to the scribes and what he says about his family, but you are not against your unbelieving family. You're against Satan. You're actually so for your family that you have to show these two sides that they might repent and come to God's side and find forgiveness in him. You're not against your, your nation or your people or another nation who don't serve God. You're not against people, even people of other religions, or people who frustrate us because they say they're a Christian, but they're not being one, and I don't think they really are a Christian. We're not against those 
people, we who are on God's side, are not against those on Satan's side. We're against Satan. That's what Paul kind of is saying in Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood people. It's not who our battle's against. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, namely Satan and his demons. That's who we're against. If you think about it, Satan and his demons can't repent. Their time is over. They've eternally chosen their side, and so their end is written. But every living person on the other team, listen, they're not a person who we fight against. They're not a person who we fight with, but they're a person who we fight for, that they would come to God's side, that they would come to understand and follow God's truth that they would know the side that offers eternal life. We're not against them, we're not working with them, but we're, we're for them. We want what's best for them, even our enemies. You think, like, did Jesus love, it sounds harsh what he says against his family, did Jesus love his family? Yeah, like as he's hanging on the cross, you remember, I think it's in John's account, he, he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother, almost as if to say, hey, I can't, I take care of my mom. I, I care. And behold your son, like this, my brother. Take care. Like Jesus, he, he loves his family, which is why he says, I think, you're not being my family. Like, I want you to be with me. Quit trying to stop my work. Do the work that I'm doing. Trust me. The only other option is going to mean our, our full separation. So he draws that kind of dividing line to say, I want you to be with me. Otherwise, we're not going to be. Um, Jesus loved the Jews. These people who are coming up against him, the leaders of the people, the scribes, the Pharisees. I mean, when he is coming into, um, into the city of Jerusalem, as he's coming close to his time of death, he's, he's weeping over the city, right? These are my people, and I've longed to, to gather you like a mother gathers her chicks or whatever he says, and it's just this, this loving language and this care, and he's saying, you've missed your king, and why are you doing this? And he's struggling through. Yes, he cares about his people, which is why he's saying, hey, can I tell you guys what you're doing when you say that I'm working on Satan's behalf? I want you to make sure you understand this. Like, this isn't a little thing. You're choosing Satan, and that's unforgivable. I want you to be with me, so stop doing your own work and do mine. It's like Jesus is saying, like, you, you can't stand on the fence. There's none of that in this spiritual world. And he's not pitting us against our family, our nations, or religious people exactly. What, what might seem like Jesus rejecting the leaders of Israel and rejecting his mother and brothers and sisters is really Jesus graciously putting before them and putting before everybody, hey, you guys, there's only two sides. And come to my Father's side. Be, be with us and, and do his will. And, and that's our message to people as, as we talk to those who don't believe. Like, have you ever had, I know you all have, I've heard of you, family members that think you're crazy. Like, you're, you're doing that, it's cool that you're following Jesus and doing nice things, but you're going a little over the top and you're kind of doing some weird things and that's just too much, right? That separation that, that happens in there, that is needed. That's showing 
them, that's showing you, that's showing the world around. There's two sides, <laughs> the, the imp and the implications of of what you're saying and doing are are really bad. Does that make sense? So we who are on God's side are not innately different than those who are on Satan's side. Just whatever God has done in us has made us change. And we who are on God's side are not against those who are on Satan's side. We actually fight for them to know the truth. We want, and we, in order to do so, we have to say there are two sides: God's side and Satan's. And there's there's not a neutral. God's side, Jesus' side, are those who are with Him and are those who are doing what Jesus did. All right, let me pray, Father. Uh, these. Words are kind of just easy to speak, and it's kind of easy to talk about theoretically until some of these things land into our lives where our following you and the extreme, seemingly extreme to some life that you call us to, begins to rub up against our people and our families and our friends. And so um, the, the practical day-to-day -day side of this is, is not easy. Lord, would you give us out of love for people, out of love for our families, the boldness and the courage to, to let what separates us show and to not, uh, not to cave and to kind of uh, quench the work that you want to do in us, but to say, no, it's either, it's either your way or another way that leads to death. Help us to have the boldness and love to, to live in that and to show that. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have forgiven all of our sins. We thank you that you've put your spirit in us. We thank you that what you've called us to do in making disciples, it, your word says that you will be with us always to the end of the age. Um, so even the work that we get to do now as we go out and we proclaim the gospel and we proclaim that, hey, there's two sides to this life, to eternity, as we proclaim these things, we don't go out from you. You're always with us in those things. So we thank you, God. Would you strengthen us by your spirit? Uh, would you help us to preach the gospel accurately in love? And we ask that you'd cause people then to repent and to choose you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.